We are joined, as always, by Fed Guy, Joseph Wang. Joseph, welcome back to Forward Guidance. Hey, great to be on, Jack. Joseph, honestly, you're the co-host. You should be, perhaps one of these days, you got to welcome me back. But Joseph, today, you know, you ju- we just were on on Friday with uh, uh, Mike Ippolito, co-founder of BlockWorks, to talk a lot about the Fed, a lot about Buller's comments. So today, I really want to focus on the Bank of Japan and yield curve control. But before we do, Joseph, let's just get a few things out of the way. Number one, what is going on with this emergency meeting that happened yesterday at the Federal Reserve that everyone's saying the Fed is going to do an intermeeting rate hike because of this emergency meeting and this never happens. I take it that you have uh, you have some some fact fact checking to do on that. Yeah, yeah. Intermeeting intermeeting rate hike doesn't sound like the Fed, and you know I, I so the way that this works, you know, like this this like title of this show, forward guidance. If the Fed wanted to hike rates, they really don't need to have an intermeeting emergency meeting. All they have to do is Paul says, hey, I want to have an impromptu interview, okay? And he sits down and he's just going to, you know, hang out and say like, by the way, I think that rates should be higher than they are right now. I think that the market is not pricing that correctly. All he has to say are those words and boom, rates are higher, instant rate hike. So that's really all he has to do. He doesn't have to have any emergency meeting. Um, but about what happened yesterday. So on the Fed's website, there was uh, there was a notice that there was a, uh, I guess, uh, expedited board meeting about discount rates. And I think some people looked at that and felt that that might have been some kind of emergency policy meeting. But that, I think, misunderstands on how the Fed works. So the Fed is a complicated structure. The part of the Fed that does monetary policy it's called the Federal Open Markets Committee. It's the FOMC, and it's comprised of the Fed, Fed Board's governors and a rotating panel of Federal Reserve Bank presidents. Now, every now and then, those, that group gathers together and makes monetary policy decisions. Um, what happened yesterday was not a meeting of the FOMC. It was a meeting by the Fed Board, which is separate from the FOMC. But as, as you can see, they, they're related because the Everyone on the board is also a part of the FOMC. And what that seems to be is just a you know, routine meeting to talk about some certain things. Now, the Fed board has certain powers. It can, for example, set interest on reserves, which is how, how much interest um, the Fed pays commercial banks. It can also alter the discount rate. So if you have an emergency loan from, uh, if you're a commercial bank and you want to get an emergency loan from the Fed, the board would would set that as well. So it has some powers, but they don't include changing the stance of monetary policy. So um, you would you would not expect there to be anything that affecting monetary policy out of a meeting like that, and you know they don't have the authority to do that. So yesterday was, um, uh, yeah, I don't think anything happened. And by the way. The discount wait, the discount window, that's just completely obsolete in today's world. If you look at the banking system, it just has trillions and trillions of dollars of um, cash. So there's really no reason for a bank to ever be borrowing from the Fed. Um, so they can adjust the discount rate, but it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, a, a discount. That's sort of it's called discounting when you would get money. And it would be less than what the notional value of the bond would be. It goes back, like way back in, in monetary, not just monetary policy, but just you know, banking. Um, and 
that was very important, I think, in 2008 when Lehman Brothers was, okay, we'll allow Lehman Brothers to access the discount window because it wasn't a commercial bank, but they, they did it to sort of save the banking system. But you're saying now that's not important. Joseph, what about, and I may have been um, uh, um, a culprit or in this uh, fear-mongering because I posted something on Twitter that just compared the discount rate, which I believe is in blue, uh, to the Fed funds rate, and they pretty much match each other like like puzzle pieces. Uh, so they are pretty correlated, right? Um, yeah. That, well, I mean, that, that's that's kind of the design. That's how monetary policy is transmitted in part. They adjust the Fed funds rate, but everything else has to move with it as well. Um, so, But you wouldn't be able to change the discount rate independently without without changing the Fed funds rate. Well, okay, you could if you wanted to you wanted to make some extra accommodation and things like that. I think they did that during the, the 2020 pandemic. I think they made the discount rate a bit more uh, lower so than it otherwise would have been. But um, the board doesn't independently have the power to change the stance of monetary policy. Right. Okay, so thanks for clearing that up, Joseph. Before, quick, real quick before we talk yield curve control, what did you make of Bullard's uh, comments yesterday? I believe he said something like, the Fed's credibility is on the line here, uh, and that you know I th- think we need to front load more of our planned removal accommodation than we had planned. And this is a lot of inflation in the U.S. economy: 7.5 percent on the headline CPI. These are numbers that Alan Greenspan never saw; uh, they haven't occurred in 40 years. So uh, our credibility is on the line here. So yeah, basically saying that the Fed's credibility is on the line. Is he is he shooting from the hip here? In other words, is is Powell after Bullard Bullard gets off CNBC, Powell's calling him and saying, "What are you doing?" <laughs> or is this kind of a good cop bad cop routine from the Fed, where uh, uh, Bullard is the is the hawkish villain that Powell needs? I really think there's a struggle in the FOMC right now as to what to do. So when Bullard rode the markets last Friday with this comment that he thought maybe we should do 50 basis points and definitely 100 before July. You know, right after that, as we talked about um, uh, last week as well, there was a paper, there was a story from um, Nick from the Wall Street Journal, basically pushing back on that. Right, that that in my view is the power center pushing back on that. And in Bullard's interview on Monday, I think many expected him to just take back his comments and be like, "Yeah, yeah, I didn't really mean that. I was just kidding." Uh, he doubled down on that. He affirmed that, but he also noted that his view is not a majority view, and he hopes to convince uh, p- other people on the FOMC to his view. So I think what we're seeing right now is just this negotiation, this decision-making process taking place. I mean, we have time and we have some more data to see before the next FOMC meeting. So um, I, I would expect there to be more clarity by the time that heads. I, by the time we get to that meeting, I think that um, whatever's in the price would be what happens because the Fed doesn't like to surprise markets. But bigger picture, though. It's not really that important whether the Fed goes 25 or 50 in March. I think, in my view, what's more important is just the long-term trajectory, um, what the terminal rate is, what how high we'll go, the maximum level we'll go. What's happening right now is that the market is highly front-loading rate hikes this year. So whether it's you know front-loading it to March or just maybe we go higher later, that that's just the difference of a couple months. I, I don't think it makes a big difference. Mm, yeah, I've heard you say that it's the terminal rate that, that ultimately matters. We have seen the terminal rate move up, though, since last week, right? And it should. I, I hope it should. Um, I think there are people, there are very former senior people at the F- on the Fed. Uh, for example, former FRBNY President Dudley. He's, think, he's thinking that there's upside risk of that. Um, I think he uh, he's a really smart guy, and I think I agree with him. 
Uh, what's actually really interesting is that there seems to be a bit more inversion uh, past 2023. So it seems like at least some people in the market think that the Fed um, was going to have to start cutting rates again in a couple of years. Maybe that could be perceived as a policy error, either for real economy reasons, or maybe they think that, um, like last time, when you hike rates past 2%, the market blows up and you have to go back down. I, I don't know, but it seems to be more pronounced now that uh, there's a growing contingency of market participants that perceive that um, this was going to be a very short cycle. And can you explain that? I, I think on Friday, we, we looked at a chart from Bloomberg that saw that 2024 euro dollar contract was one basis uh, uh, tighter than 2023, December perhaps, showing that you know, uh, on a probability adjusted basis, the Fed is actually going to loosen monetary policy from 2023 to 2024. And why would they do that? Because perhaps they've gone too far, the market crashes, credit spreads blow out. Can you just ex explain that logic a little bit? Yeah, so the euro dollar, the short-term interest rate futures, the euro dollar futures, it's really just an estimate of the path of Fed policy. So, so far, it's saying that the Fed policy goes higher, higher, higher hiking up to, let's say, past 2023. And then it's beginning to think that the Fed might start cutting uh, beyond 2023. So if that's the cycle, well, that means that something's probably going to break on the way there, and something usually does break. But I, I would also note, though, that this short-term interest rate market, it's volatile. It changes its mind all the time. So today, it could be thinking that, you know, that's, that's, that's when the inversion happens. Tomorrow, it could be gone. Um, so, and furthermore, if you look at its, um, its uh, track record for the past 10 years, it's not that great. So post-GFC, it was always, always thinking that the Fed is going to hike to 4%, hike to 4%. It's wrong for like seven years. Yeah, Alex Gurevich, a very senior macro hedge fund manager, he told me, he said, uh, Jack, don't listen to the interest rate markets when they say it's going to hike. And I said, but but Alex, I thought that the, the euro dollar market was the truth. And he said, no, Jack, the euro dollar market is the ultimate falsehood. <laughs> and I said, but hasn't, ha hasn't they, hasn't they project, you know, uh, uh, undercut the federal funds, the dot plot, and they've been right about that? And he said, yeah, the Fed funds say that they're going to hike to two and a half. He said the story of the past 10 years is that the Fed uh, indicates in the dot plots they're going to hike to 3%. The Fed funds futures, the euro dollar futures, indicate they're only going to hike to 225 But in reality, they actually cut to zero. <laughs> <laughs> Something else to, to keep in mind, just, just on that note, the euro dollar market is super, super liquid. And so a lot of people use that as a way to hedge their positions. Like if you hold illiquid positions, let's say in uh, corporate bonds or something like that, and you're afraid something bad will happen, then you know you could you could buy your dollar futures thinking that if something bad happens, the Fed will hike, and so you know you, you'll make money, even though, you, um, and at the same time you probably might not be able to sell your corporate bonds because when something bad happens, there's not a lot of liquidity. So there's that there there are non there are reasons to buy euro dollar futures that have nothing to do with whether or not the stance of policy will be uh, will, will be hiking or lowering. Yeah, so you're saying like if if a if a sovereign wealth fund like if if Norway you know has tons of oil and gas reserves that are highly cyclical and dependent on the economy, and they own that privately, they they can't sell it. They would use it a euro. I'm just hypothetically they would they would buy contracts. It could be like a you can think of it like a giant put put option like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joseph, I just got a question. The the folks on the desk where you used to work, you were a senior trader on the New York Open Markets desk. The folks on the desk, what would you say? And I don't know if you're still in touch or whatever, but like, what what is their morale? Are they happy that they're tightening or, or not? Um, I, don't, I don't actually think they they care one way or another. 
it's 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 probably more exciting. So I can only speak for myself. It's more exciting to be on the Fed when everything is falling apart, because when everything is falling apart, you know, you get a lot of attention, you do more interesting things. And, you know, everything is kind of focused on what the Fed is doing. So um, I was there during the pandemic of 2020, and it was really cool. So we we're doing all these interesting projects, you're we talking to interesting people, and you were you were very much um, having tremendous influence on what happens in the markets. Um, during times of, let's say, peace, let's say the Fed is not doing anything, it's kind of boring, you know? So um, that that's my own perspective. How it's like working there is, is a bit different though. I mean, it's ultimately, you're working for the government, so it's a good learning experience, but it's not that great as a place to work. Most people who work there learn a lot and they, they go to the street. It's kind of a revolving door in that sense. Thanks, Joseph. You brought up interesting things. Perfect segue to what's going on in Japan, because as the Fed threatens to tighten monetary policy, even the ECB tightened monetary policy. Brazil, you know, interest rates are at 7%. Every central bank is tightening monetary policy. As that happens, one central bank stands alone in not tightening, and that is the Bank of Japan, which continues to buy a gajillion uh, amount of Japanese government bonds. And recently, they announced that they would return to yield curve control, that is, pegging bond yields on the yield curve at a certain amount. So quantitative easing is buying a fixed amount of bonds, whereas yield curve control is buying a variable amount of bonds to fix an interest rate at a certain level. Do I have that right? And then also, what are your thoughts on, on J the Bank of Japan's yield curve control? It's yeah, it's, it's exactly right. So they basically, like you mentioned, they, they set a target and they're willing to defend it. And they can do that because you know, they have infinite amount of money and in the Bank of Japan's case, like most of the bonds as well. So they, they basically own that market so they can set whatever rate they want. I think it's really interesting what they're doing. Like If you recall, uh, I think when they first rolled that out, it was because the JGVs were too negative. I think they wanted to have a positive sloping curve. So they wanted to push the JGVs up to uh, zero is, is where the target was. They had a loose bond. I think it was 10 basis points then. It's 25 now. Um, but uh, uh, now they have an opposite problem. The JGBs, they want to go higher, but they don't want them to go higher. I think this is really interesting because it stands against what the entire world is doing. The entire world is moving towards more restrictive monetary policy, even the ECB, as you mentioned. But Bank of Japan is resolute in trying to keep its yield curve control. That has implications, I think, for, for things like its currency. Because usually if you can't have a release on rates, you, you'll try to, it affects other parts of the market. So for example, if you're in Japan and you rates throughout the world are moving higher and you're only able to earn 25 basis points at most on your GGBs, you might want to go abroad to, let's say, US or maybe even the, the Eurozone. Now this has to in part to do with what your hedging costs are if you hedge and most people do as well. What this really tells me, though, is that when you look at bond prices throughout the world, you can't really think of them as determined by market forces, because as long as one major player in the world is setting, pegging their interest rates to 25 basis points, okay, obviously below market, since you know if it since they're having to do unlimited QE, um, that all bleeds into all of the rest 
all the rest of the world. So when people say, you know, the 10 years really low in the U.S., uh, that, that probably means that we have low growth or demographics or blah, 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 uh, maybe. But in part, it's also impacted by global sovereign bond yields as well. So that's something, that's something people have to keep in mind. The pre-GFC world and the post-GFC world are very different. In the post-GFC world, you have tremendous, tremendous central bank intervention, and that has a meaningful impact on prices, in, in my opinion. Bank of Japan is kind of the petri dish for monetary experimentation. You know, the first ones to do QE, and th- then they're the first ones to do yield curve control in 2016, with the exception, though, of of the Fed during the 1940s, right? Can you can you explain why why do central banks want to uh, cap yields? What you know, why not just let the 10-year uh, JGB yields instead of being pegging at 25 basis points? What's wrong with going into 26 basis points? You know, or or one you know 1.25. What's wrong with that? So in the 1940s, that was to fund the war, if you're with me. It's an existential crisis. So you wanted to be able to keep rates low um, so that we'd be able to fund the government to win the war. You know, if you don't win the war, it's kind of everything's for nothing. So that that's understandable. But what they're doing today, I think it's 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 uh, so it's not just Japan that's doing this. Uh, just recently, Australia did this as well. They pegged their three-year. Um, I think of it as just basically a logical evolution to what monetary policy has been going towards for the past 10 years. So if you think of um, if you think of what happened uh, after the GFC, rates went to zero, right? And so what central banks wanted to do, and central banks perceive the world through the lens of interest rates. They think that when you move interest rates up or down, somehow something, something happens and you get more growth in inflation. So when your rates are at zero, what they tried in the passes forward guidance. You want to push down medium-term rates, right? Say committing that I'm going to keep my overnight rates at a very low rate for the foreseeable future. And then they tried QE, just putting some pressure, down pressure on longer-dated rates. Now, the more, the logical conclusion to that, of course, is, you know, I just go ahead and set longer-dated rates at an administered rate for 0% in the case of Japan. It's just the more efficient way, I think, of doing QE. Um, QE, you buy bonds, but you don't really know what effect that has, right? Fed says that all the time, and we all understand. Well, we all understand. The Fed doesn't understand how QE or QT works. But if you do yield control, that's a lot clearer what you're doing. You can just say, "I want yield to be here." You won't have to guess what kind of impact that your purchases are. And it's kind of an extension to a low rate world. You know, rates are low. You want to try to give additional accommodation by having. Uh, lower rates in the longer dated section. So I think that's that's just what it is. It's trying to give additional accommodation in a low rate world. Yeah, Joseph, what really melted my brain when I first learned about quantitative easing was that long-term bond yields tend to rise as the Fed is buying bonds. Typically, when you buy a bond, the price goes up, which means the bond yield goes down. But so that really confused me and sort of made me think up is down, down is up, left is right, you know, east is west. But it's just that the right. It's just that the Fed actually buys bonds. It starts QE to help the economy, help asset prices, and it does so at times of immense distress. Naturally, you know, March of 2020. And what were long-term bond yields doing in March of 2020? They were extremely low. So you're buying bonds when the prices of them is at an all-time high and the yields are low. So it's sort of natural that the, that the prices would would fall, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think as many things determine interest rates, so it's hard to just look at one thing. 
even stranger to say that if you buy $5 trillion of treasuries, which is what the Fed does, that doesn't affect its price at all. If you buy $5 trillion of anything, the price is going to go higher. So, um, But it's just not the only thing that matters. And like you mentioned, those right. risk-off, risk-on flows, they, they are important as well. And during March 2020, the was, people thought the war was going to end. When it didn't end, well, bond yields went up because the world didn't end. could go back and buy equities again. And Joseph, what is sort of the long-term implications of the fact that the, the Fed buys bonds, the central banks, they buy bonds when they're at an all-time high via quantitative easing, and then they let them go, they sell them back to the market at lower prices, right? That's basically what we just said. Is that kind of just like a gift to the financial system <laughs> and the economy? Okay, so the, the prices of the bonds fluctuate, right? So the Fed bought them when the prices are really high, right? And so they put, let's say they paid out 120. Okay, so, and then when the prices were low, let's say they're 120, the 110 now, now they sell it back. Okay, so you're saying that that added $10. Oh, okay, I've never thought about it that way. That's interesting. Thanks. Joseph, um, what are the implications of this yield curve control from Japan. You said you said it could be uh, impact the currency valve because interest rates aren't allowed to move. Uh, what else? Do you, do you think it gives, perhaps, I'm just speculating here, some leeway to other central banks to say, hey, the Bank of Japan is, I mean, J Bank of Japan is very known for being ultra dovish, right? But they're saying Bank of Japan is doing yield curve control. So we don't have, we, we can delay our, our hiking, our tapering, our QT a little bit. Is that a factor? It could be. I mean, you could be because that basically all things equal, that the, the Bank of Japan is basically keeping global monetary policy a bit more accommodative than otherwise would have. Um, actually, I, I would think, though, that if the Bank of Japan is keeping monetary policy more accommodative globally than, than it otherwise would have been, then that gives people a bit more cover to be a bit more aggressive. Um, for example, if you're the Fed and you're doing QT, then, you know, you're going to you're you're going to have to assume that you know maybe there's going to be more foreign buying for for your treasury bonds because monetary policy in this big part of the world is so accommodative. So you might be you feel more comfortable um, becoming having a more aggressive QT. So that I'm not sure if that's a big part of their if they're thinking. The thing is, it's really hard to quantify things like that. Um, one other thing to keep in mind is that this carry trade for people in Japan buying U.S. treasuries. Um, it's not just about the nominal difference between treasuries and JGBs, but also the hedging costs. And when the U.S. is hiking rates, those hedging costs rise. And so um, even if the uh, the nominal 10-year difference becomes wider, the hedging costs could eat that eat that up if we have a, you know, a pretty quick tightening cycle on the short end. That's a really good point, Joseph. You got to you got to hedge the the cost between the the yen and the dollar, and if hikes if if hikes are going to happen for the the dollar, then the dollar is expected to go up because it will tra attract foreign capital. Uh, have you looked a little bit at the rate differentials? I know, you know, I was reading Alex Gervich's book, which is you know somewhere somewhere behind me, and he was saying that when when, when rate differentials, but let's say between the euro ten year bond and or German ten year bond and a, a U.S. when they get to certain levels, it's just a treasure a ten-year treasury is is just a extremely easy buy. Um, at at what point are U.S. rates going to sort of be so high that they're going to just suck capital in from from around the globe, and we sort of have a, like a not to be dramatic, but like a 1930s situation? I'm not obviously that's not my base case, but if, you know I mean, we talked about this on an earlier episode. If if rates get so high and 
you know, if you're if you're a, a Bangladeshi bank, why are you going to be lending? You know, you can lend lend to lend in the U.S. and then that's really bad for the economy of Bangladesh. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's a good point. So, I think you, I think it really depends on just the region. So, the U.S.'s rates are maybe going to be two percent in in a, in a year. In Brazil, they're like ten and three quarters today. So, I ten? I, I, I thought it was seven. I'm out, I'm out of the loop. Uh, wow. Yeah. So. You might so for them, you know, it's it's really not going to make sense to to move to get some to get to get some investment here. It could make sense for some of them in the eurozone to come over from Europe to to here in the short term in the money markets. So I think it really depends on where you are in the world. Um, we do see some broad dollar strength already. You see uh, dollar strengthened against the euro. I think mainly the past few months. Uh, some people think that if the euro was moved to zero from away from negative, that might have some kind of meaningful impact because then you're no longer losing money. You can actually just have zero, which they might be happy with. Um, I, I guess that remains to be seen. Uh, seems like we're on a path to have greater interest rate differentials between the Eurozone and us. So it would seem that would encourage more capital flows. And I, I say this because these are really the big pools of capital in the world, the US and the Eurozone. Um, so. I, I think I agree with you that that would have dollar strength. It seems, Joseph. I, I was reading earlier a pretty uh, dramatic, uh, somewhat emotional uh, op-ed from the Wall Street Journal editorial page about yield curve control. And uh, you know, I'm glad that I'm, I'm interviewing you because I think you you really have an understanding. They were saying that the knock-on effects were number one to the currency and number two to the credibility of the Bank of Japan. Do you think that the credibility of the Bank of Japan is under threat, or is the, is the whole notion of credibility sort of you know not important? Because credibility in, in means that one party has to trust another. But if the other party, i.e., Bank of Japan, has all of the control and they're buying the entire curve, you know, <laughs> what does it care what the market thinks? And as as you noted in your excellent book, Central Banking One Hundred One, uh, that wasn't there. There was a, there was a one day in twenty eighteen maybe when literally not a single yeah. Japanese government bond traded. Because it was the market's dead. Uh, you know that that that's so. I, I think to your point, I would separate credibility between what they what what they can control over what their goals are. Now, in terms of let's say control credibility in terms of enforcing their yield curve control, that's absolute. They could do that. There's no problem. Same way, same thing for the Fed enforcing overnight rates. That's that's fine. That can be done as well. There's that's credibility is super important because for monetary policy, you have to be able to carry out what you say you're going to do from an implementation perspective. So that credibility can, cannot be touched. That's super important. And all the central banks have the part to, to implement that. In terms of achieving their goals, like you know, 2% inflation, stuff like that, yeah, I, I'm not sure that anyone ever believes them. I mean, I think what they do is that they say that for whatever reason, over the past 20 dec- uh, two decades, we have you know, pretty tame inflation. Maybe because of globalization, maybe because of technology, but if you're a central banker, you would look at that and say it's because I have a lot of credibility. It's it's all me, man. But um, I I don't actually think that's true, and I think if you um, I, I have no idea how widespread people actually believe that, but it's I mean it's obviously not true because look at what's happening at the Fed: seven percent, seven and a half percent inflation, and look at what happened to inflation post-GFC, persistently below target. So it's pretty obvious to me that and we'll look at Japan as well. I'm sure they don't want to be in super low 0% inflation forever. 
but they can't do anything about it. So in terms of central banks achieving their goal, I don't think there's credibility in that to begin with, and that's been shown over and over again for the past past few years. So that part of credibility is was never there, but the credibility to enforce uh, their implementation tools, that that is there. And of course, if you have a money printer, it has to be there because you can back up everything you say. Yeah, that's a great point. People writing this op-ed, they would note, oh, Anytime uh, there's loose monetary policy, they say, oh, it's not meeting their, their mandate. But really, central bankers, to meet their mandate, they have to loosen policy because as you, over the past decade, they have, they have consistently failed to meet their inflation and, and uh, a mandate. Joseph, my final question for you is, what would have to happen for the Bank of Japan to reconsider its yield curve control? What what valve would have to break for them to sort of to, to re-announce? Is it inflation, the currency? You know, let's say let's say the Japanese yen, as you indicated it might, weakens dramatically. What then does does uh, the Bank of Japan I think they I think they throw a huge party and be like, I think this is going to help our inflation. <laughs> I, I have to imagine that's part of the plan. Um, so one of the ways you can do get inflation, just make your currency really cheap so your imports become more expensive. That way, you can raise inflation domestically. Let's say, for example, in terms of yen, maybe the price of oil will go up a lot, and that feeds through their their entire cost structure. Um, yeah, I think that's just part of the part of the. They would stop when they breached their target, or when you get a new governor of the Bank of Japan. So it, it seems that uh, the current governor is very intent on maintaining maintaining his current stance. I got you. Oh, Joseph, I know I said final question, but just this is my final one. Bank of Japan, is it true it's it's publicly traded as a stock? Wow, no, I did not know that. That's really interesting. <laughs> I wonder how they're performing. Yeah, I actually don't think they're performing great. And I, I let me I mean, look, if if I'm wrong about this, we're gonna okay. cut this, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it's yeah. But it's probably one of those things where it's like Saudi Ramco is publicly traded, but only like one percent of it trades and you know, the rest is controlled by you know, I don't think the shareholder meeting is, is that democratic in the process. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> maybe you should buy as many shares, put yourself for election, maybe you be governor. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> I love the entire curve fixed. The entire curve submerged below the sea of zero. All right. Well, uh, Joseph, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, FedGuy.com at FedGuy12. Uh, definitely, you know, people at home should check out your analysis. Um, yeah, what, just give us a little hint. What's your, what's your next um, uh, writing going to be about on FedGuy.com? Ah, gosh, I haven't been thinking about that right now. I've been working on making some online courses, but I'll get around to that. Okay, okay, cool. Well, uh, thanks so much, Joseph, and thank you everyone for watching. <laughs>